2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. Today on the program in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He's the author most recently of The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness. He'll be joining us for uh, much of the 5 o'clock hour, so I hope you can uh, join us for that. Taking a look at some of the developing stories from the day, earlier in the day, um, Democrats uh, are not going to make it easy for Judge Kavanaugh. Democratic lawmakers ratcheted up their threats against Brett Kavanaugh as the FBI investigates his background, moving the goalpost further and further away. They vowed to conduct more probes if he is confirmed for the Supreme Court, apparently regardless of what the FBI uncovers or fails to uncover, and if they take control of the House. If he is on the Supreme Court, they say, and the Senate hasn't investigated, then the House will, uh, will have to. Representative Jared uh, Nadler, a Democrat out of New York, said on ABC this week, that's a very fine talking point for a re-election campaign. Nadler added that the House would investigate investigate if lawmakers felt the FBI investigation wasn't thorough. And of course, whatever the FBI does or fails to do, it will not be considered thorough by the Democrats who oppose the Kavanaugh nomination on the Judiciary Committee. He went on to say we would have no uh, have to investigate any credible allegations, certainly of perjury or other things that haven't properly been looked into before, he said. Well, Nadler likely um, would chair the committee if Democrats regained control of the House. Democrats have uh, complained about the week-long deadline imposed on the FBI uh, to look into sexual assault allegations against Kavanaugh and limited scope of the investigation. They also have been threatening to impeach Kavanaugh if he is confirmed for the high court. Now, this is after they were congratulating and um, patting on the back uh, Mr. Flake, Senator Flake, who is not up for reelection and admitted in an interview earlier today that if he had been up for re-election, there's no way he would have capitulated on an FBI investigation, which tells you a little something about how Washington works. Uh, he had been pressed by the Democrats to call for a uh, limited uh, uh, in t- terms of time and scope investigation by the FBI. And of course, that was not going to hold as predicted at the time. Uh, That he made that um, that request. Meanwhile, James Comey weighs in on the Kavanaugh um, confirmation. The former FBI director, James Comey, criticized the time frame of the bureau's ongoing review into Brett Kavanaugh's background Sunday. Uh, writing in the New York Times op-ed that it is idiotic to put a a shot clock on the FBI. Comey, who was fired by President Trump in May of 2017, which I'm sure had nothing to do with his impression of what's happening, conceded that an investigation, this would be the 7th, that must be wrapped up by Friday was better than no investigation at all. But he also wrote that the process is deeply flawed and apparently designed to thwart the fact-gathering process. If truth were the only goal, there would be no clock, and the investigation wouldn't have been sought after the, the Senate Judiciary Committee already endorsed the nominee. There's a lot that could be said there in terms of timing, Senator Feinstein, and so on. We'll just leave it at that. Kellyanne Conway's uh, made a revelation, an emotional revelation at that. Uh, she came forward on Sunday and stated that she is a victim of sexual assault. The revelation um, by the uh, counselor to the president came during a tense back and forth with journalist Jake Tapper on on CNN's State of the Union. While Conway defended the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, I feel very empathetic, frankly, for victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment and rape, she said. I'm a victim of sexual assault. She then went on to address the women who confronted Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona on Friday after he said that he would vote to pass Kavanaugh through the judiciary panel. I want those women who were sexually assaulted the other day who were confronting Jeff Flake, God bless them, but go blame the perpetrator, she said. That's who's responsible for the sexual assault. The people who commit them, and the United States and Canada confirmed today that, actually on Sunday, that they had reached a deal on a new modernized trade agreement, which is designed to replace the 1994 NAFTA pact. In a joint statement, the two nations said the new deal would be called the United States-Mexico-Canada Agre- Agreement, rather USMCA. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said following a cabinet meeting, "It's a good day for Canada." Trudeau plans to address the media on the deal today in his country. Meanwhile, California and the uh, Trump administration are clashing again. California Governor Jerry Brown signed the, na- the nation's toughest uh, net neutrality measure on Sunday, requiring Internet providers to maintain a level playing field online. The move, which sounds good, but doesn't exactly get to the heart of the question, I'll just mention. The move prompted an immediate lawsuit by the Trump administration. Advocates of net neutrality hope the new law and the Home of the global technology industry will have national implications by pushing Congress to enact national net neutrality rules or encouraging other states to follow suit. But the U.S. Department of Justice wants to stop the law in its tracks, arguing that it creates burdensome anti-consumer requirements that go against the federal government's approach to deregulating the Internet. And on this day in 2017, a gunman opens fire from a room in the Mandalay Bay Casino Hotel in Las Vegas on a crowd of 22,000 country music fans at a country um, at a concert, rather below, leaving 58 people dead, more than 800 injured, in the deadliest mass shooting in um, modern U.S. history. The gunman Stephen Craig Paddock kills himself before officers arrive. And on this day in 1964, the free speech movement begins at the University of California, Berkeley. On this day in 1957, the motto "In God We Trust" begins appearing on U.S. Paper currency. Let's just pray that it actually means something again. And on this day in 1937, Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black delivers a radio address in which he acknowledges being a former member of the Ku Klux Klan, but says he had dropped out of the organization before becoming a U.S. Senator. Now, dropping out of the organization is one thing, denouncing the organization something quite different. Well, today does, in fact, mark the one year anniversary of the most um, fatal shooting of the, in U.S. history. Something compelled Stephen Paddock to grab a gun, start firing out of his room at the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino in Las Vegas on the Strip, killing 58 people, wounding hundreds more in the deadliest mass shooting in modern American history. Police investigating the shooting have released hundreds of photos and videos of the massacre and eyewitnesses. Have come forward and to tell harrowing stories of survival and recovery, lives have been forever altered. Yet a year since the shooting began, one thing remains a mystery. What pushed the 64 year old Paddock to pull the trigger again and again? In December last year, the man tasked with handling the FBI investigation, special agent in charge Aaron Roos, vowed the bureau would get to the bottom of the matter. He said their own investigative reporting uh, would be focused uh, large, uh, in large part on the why and that it would be released sometime before the one-year anniversary of the shooting. But that report is yet to come out. In early August, Sandy Brote, the spokesperson for the FBI's Las Vegas field office, Said that the FBI's behavioral analysis unit report is still on schedule to be released this year, but certainly not before today. When asked by Fox News in a recent, uh, in recent days rather, for further update on the status of their investigation, there was no answer. But today marks the one-year anniversary as the massacre um, occurred and the motive still unknown. Well, the FBI has uh, contacted Deborah Ramirez in connection with its investigation of sexual misconduct allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. And I want to just remind you, as I mentioned uh, last week when we uh, discussed this on the program, that there's a difference between a criminal investigation conducted by the FBI and a, a investigation that's conducted as part of the nominating process. They are two very different things, and they don't yield the same kinds of results. But nonetheless, they have contacted Deborah Ramirez. The Bureau's um, uh, con- a contact with her confirms it will not confine its inquiry to the first set of allegations brought by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, though it's not yet clear which other accusations federal investigators might pursue. She has agreed to cooperate with their investigation. Um, Ramirez's attorney, John Kloon, said in a statement to the Washington Post, out of respect for the integrity of the process, we will have no further comment at this time. Ramirez claims Kavanaugh uh, exposed himself to her during a party in their freshman year at Yale. Uh, she said she was drunk and nearly incapacitated. The probe will be limited to current credible allegations against the nominee and will be completed by Friday. That's a quote uh, from the Senate Judiciary Committee spokesperson. It's not clear how many allegations the inquiry might encompass. At least five accusations of varying degrees of credibility have been made public. It was not clear as of uh, Saturday if the FBI would investigate the allegations of Julie Swetnick, a Washington-based web developer, who claims Kavanaugh was present at a house party where she was assaulted in the 1980s? More information about her and a local connection when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the next hour of the program, we're going to talk with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He's the author of The Church in Babylon, heeding the call to be a light in the darkness. Well, Julie Swetnick was one of Brett Kavanaugh's accusers, but she has um some... Faced misconduct allegations here in Portland, we have since learned. She's one of the women accusing the Supreme Court nominee of sexual misconduct. She did face allegations of her own of misconduct during a short stint here in Portland at a tech company some 18 years ago. The 55-year-old was the third woman in recent weeks to raise allegations against him. She issued a statement on Wednesday of last week in which she claimed she'd observed Kavanaugh at alcohol-fueled parties where women were mistreated. Her attorney, Michael Avenatti, yes, that Michael Avenatti, a fierce critic of President Trump, who reportedly considered or is considering a presidential run in 2020, uh, also represents Stormy Daniels, the adult film actress who claims to have had Uh, relationship with the president before he took office. Well, a defamation suit her former employer brought against her was dismissed shortly after it was filed in late 2000 court documents show in emails, the Oregonian and Oregon live Avenatti called the allegations against his client completely bogus. This lawsuit never had any merit as evidenced by how quickly it was dismissed. Avenatti uh, wrote it was originally filed in retaliation for my client making claims against the company. Well, Swetnick worked at Portland based web trends for a few months in 2000. 000, according to a civil suit the Portland company filed against her late last year. The company, um, or rather, late that year, the company said she was hired as a professional services engineer to work off-site. It's not clear whether she ever worked for WebTrends in the Portland office. In its suit, WebTrends alleged that she claimed to have graduated from Johns Hopkins University, but the company said it subsequently learned the school had no record of her attendance. WebTrends also said she falsely described her work experience at a prior employer. The suit also alleges that Sweatnick engaged in unwelcome sexually offensive conduct while at WebTrends and made false and retaliatory allegations that other coworkers had engaged in inappropriate conduct toward her the suit alleges Sweatnick engaged in unwelcome innuendo and inappropriate conduct directed at two male employees during a business lunch with Webtrend customers present. With Swetnick, she claimed the two um, other employees had sexually harassed her, according to that suit. Webtrend's uh, uh, suit, rather, said it determined that she had engaged in misconduct but could not find evidence to support her allegations against her colleagues. Later, the company alleged that she took medical leave and simultaneously claimed unemployment benefits in the District of Columbia. In the suit, Webtrends alleged that she uh, threatened legal action against the company over her own harassment claims. The lawsuit claimed the act defamed the company and sought at least $150,000 on behalf of an employee that Swetnick had allegedly made false statements about. WebTrim still operates in Portland, where its technology helps clients measure and analyze traffic on its websites. The company declined to comment um, on the suit this week. Uh, Since then, a boyfriend has also come forward saying that she was utterly unreliable, as has a close friend. Whether or not that will be part of the investigation undertaken by the FBI remains to be seen, but we are hearing that it's possible possible that investigation could be concluded as, as soon as Friday of this week and possibly earlier. Meanwhile, the Senate Judiciary Committee asked the FBI on Saturday to investigate the man who made an unfounded uh, claim against Supreme Court nominee. Judge, uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh and then later recanted, saying the man had acted in bad faith. Chairman uh, Grassley said the committee had to waste resources tracking down the claim by the man who said Judge Kavanaugh uh, had, in fact, assaulted one of his friends in the 1980s. The man said he and another friend went to beat Judge Kavanaugh up, then said he recognized him recently when television showed Judge Kavanaugh after he was nominated to the High Court. Mr. Grassley didn't name the man, but after reporters tracked him down, he recanted. Such acts are not only unfair, they are potentially illegal. It's illegal to make materially false, fictitious or fraudulent statements to congressional investigators. It is illegal to obstruct committee investigations, Mr. Grassley wrote in a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions and FBI Director Christopher Wray. The move to demand an FBI probe could deter others from coming forward with false allegations over the upcoming days while Judge Kavanaugh's nomination remains in limbo. The FBI is currently investigating other allegations against the judge, including assault uh, made by Christine Blasey Ford, who in powerful testimony told senators last week of being assaulted by uh, then teenage Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, at a high school party in 1982. She said she most remembered him and his friend Mark Judge laughing at her as they assaulted her. Judge Kavanaugh indignantly refuted her claim to senators, saying that while he didn't question her that she was assaulted, it wasn't him. Several others have also come forward, including a woman who says the judge uh, exposed himself to, uh, to her during an alcohol fuel party at Yale, another who said, uh, who also made shocking and convoluted allegations the judge was complicit in gang rapes of high school girls. Judge Kavanaugh has vehemently refuted those allegations as well. Again, the FBI uh, investigating under the rules of um, uh, the nominating process, which again differ from a criminal investigation, uh, and we are hearing rumblings that that could be completed as soon as uh, Wednesday or Thursday of this week. Well, in his second scathing speech from the Senate floor in as many weeks, Senator Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Monday predicted that Democrats wanted nothing less than totally unbounded fishing expedition of indefinite duration into the accusations against Supreme Court Brett Kavanaugh in order to delay this matter past the election. Comparing Senate Democrats' behavior to McCarthyism, McConnell uh, vowed that uh, there would be a final vote on Kavanaugh's confirmation in the Senate this week, saying the time for endless delay and obstruction has come to a close. Almost immediately after the FBI started in its additional review of Kavanaugh, top Democrats who had demanded the probe openly suggested the bureau would be improperly influenced by the White House and that its investigation lacked legitimacy. If you listen carefully, Mr. President, you can... Um, practically hear the sounds of Democrats moving the goalposts, McConnell said. He added later, their goalposts keep shifting, but their goal hasn't moved an inch, not an inch. Do these actions suggest this has ever been um, about finding truth, McConnell asked. Anybody believe that? It was an open question. He also outwardly mocked Democrats and commentators for suggesting that Kavanaugh's impassioned defense against the allegations against him suggested that he lacked the necessary temperament to sit on the supreme court. Maybe we'll hear the real issue is not these uncooperated allegations he went on to say of misconduct after all, but rather the fact that judge Kavanaugh now listen to this drank beer in high school and in college or the fact that he was rightfully angry and who wouldn't be that his good name and his family have been dragged through the mud with a campaign of character assassination based on allegations that lacked any cooperation. We'll uh, continue to follow that story as it develops. Now, as the FBI is doing its investigation, some things to look for, uh, some inconsistencies in Christine Blasey Ford's uh, testimony that could be resolved through this investigation, but certainly will be the focus. Uh, Ford wasn't uh, able to recall the details of the party. Dr. Ford has no memory of key details of the night in question, details that could help corroborate her account, Uh, says, according to the uh, memo from... The prosecutor, uh, Ms. Mitchell, who was involved in the investigation, uh, she doesn't remember who invited her to the party, how she heard about it. She doesn't remember how she got to the party. She doesn't remember in what house the assault allegedly took place or uh, where that house was located with any specificity. Also, the FBI will likely look into whether or not Ford, uh, the fact that Ford doesn't recall how she got home from the party. Perhaps most importantly, she doesn't remember how she got from the party back to her house. She uh, did not have a driver's license at the time. She was not Old enough. Another issue: the FBI may be uh, looking to cooperate. No one has come forward to cooperate Ford's account up to this point. Perhaps an FBI inquiry might unearth um, cooperating testimony moving forward. But again, Ms. Mitchell points out that Dr. Ford's account of the alleged assault has not been corroborated by anyone she identified as having attended. Uh, including her lifelong friend. Mitchell writes in her memo, the uh, memorandum, by the way, notes that Ford identified three people other than Kavanaugh who were present uh, and uh, none have been able to corroborate her testimony. And most said they had not been to the party, denied being there or have any recollection of such a party. Also, Ford's account of the incident uh, isn't consistent, depending on what season you're looking at and which testimony. Her then-confidential July 30 letter to Senator Feinstein says that she uh, that after the assault at which judge uh, the judge was present, she heard Kavanaugh and Judge talking to other partygoers downstairs while she hid in the bathroom. Uh, but according to her testimony, she couldn't hear them talking to anyone Um, These are just a few of the things. Her account uh, contains gaps in her memory, her timing uh, in making the accusation, her inconsistent claim of psychological impact. Uh, These, I would imagine, are some of the things that the FBI investigation would seek to corroborate in uh, what sounds like could be a very short uh, period of looking into and looking for corroboration of claims that have been made up to this point, not only by um, Christine Blazy Ford, but others as well. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Monday afternoon. Later in the program, we are looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Edwin Lutzer. He's the author of The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to be a Light. In the Darkness. Uh, Great book, great conversation I'm anticipating uh, coming up. Well, what's next in the Kavanaugh nomination? Of course, all eyes are focused on the FBI and when its agents might complete their probe of the allegations leveled against uh, the judge by Christine Blasey Ford and others. The original plan was for the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, to launch a parliamentary sequence over the weekend, which likely would uh, would have uh, resulted in the confirmation vote by Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, but that's, of course, been pushed back. So what happens if the FBI finds something new. What if the inquiry poses other questions? Well, Democrats have to be careful to not overplay their hand on this, or the public could view their gambit as a clear ploy to delay. But here's where we stand. The Senate is technically on the Kavanaugh nomination as we speak, although there's been some no formal vote uh, debate yet. That said, McConnell has uh, queued up a long-term reauthorization of the Federal Aviation Administration first. So the FAA legislation will likely consume... um, Uh, Much of the Senate traffic until Wednesday of this week. The thing to watch for in the Senate is when McConnell, Senator McConnell, files cloture or moves to end debate on the Kavanaugh nomination. Once he makes that move, the Senate starts a four to five day calendar to complete its uh, nomination. Now, we don't believe McConnell will move to end debate until Wednesday at the earliest. And of course, it kind of hinges on when the FBI investigation is complete, in quotes. But um, could McConnell do so even though the FBI probe isn't complete? Well, that's a risk for McConnell. That kind of maneuver could be viewed as jumping the gun, violating the accord he reached with Senators Flake of Arizona, Susan Collins of Maine, Murkowski of, Alabama, of Alaska. Rather, McConnell has to be very careful not to pull the trigger too early. He needs to satisfy the uh, triumvirate, if you will, of Collins, Murkowski and Flake. Well, some conservatives uh, heaped lots of criticism on Flake over the weekend for delaying the confirmation of Kavanaugh. But truth be told, Flake may uh, very well have salvaged the uh, embattled nomination. It's about math. Now, some observers are pointing out that right now, Kavanaugh has uh, 48 hard yay votes. Senator um, Mike Enzi, a Republican out of Wyoming, is is unannounced but isn't believed to be a problem. So if you put Kavanaugh at 49, uh, close but not quite there. Had Flake not intervened, Kavanaugh likely would have uh, no change of uh, of securing the votes, uh, no chance rather, of securing the votes of Collins, Murkowski, potentially Senators Heidi Heitkamp and Joe Manchin. Justice uh, Clarence Thomas marshaled only 52 um, when he, the Senate confirmed him in 1991. The delay opens the door for Kavanaugh potentially to score as many as 53, but they're not there yet. Um, Kavanaugh's self-professed uh, love of beer has now emerged as a tipping point for the nomination. Uh, saying the president saying about the nominee this morning in the Rose Garden, I was surprised at how vocal he was about the fact that he liked beer. That's a quote. Well, in 1989, President Herbert Walker Bush, um, he nominated former Senator John Tower to be defense secretary, but Tower's nomination drew a a, uh, a number of criticisms from the Senate, the very club in which he served for decades. Senators claimed he was a womanizer and not conservative enough. Then came allegations of alcohol abuse. The questions about Towers drinking seemed to push things over the line for him. And in a rare rebuke to one of his own, the, uh, or one of their own, the Senate rejected Towers nomination 53 to 47. President Bush then tapped House Minority Leader Whip Dick Cheney. Uh, to serve as Secretary of Defense, so the Senate now sits in a, a stasis on Kavanaugh through at, at least Wednesday, as everyone waits to see when McConnell may file cloture and attempt to bring debate on the Kavanaugh nomination to a close. Now he's already announced today that that will happen this week. Again, we expect no uh, parliamentary maneuvers by McConnell until at least Wednesday, if not Thursday or later. And here's a prospective timeline, not uh, predicting the day it begins, but this is what will happen: Day one, McConnell files cloture two and. Uh, to end debate on the nomination. This step is necessary to break filibuster. Uh, Day two, by rule, a cloture petition. The parliamentary mechanism to end debate in the Senate has to lay over untouched for an entire day before it ripens, as they say, and is ready for procedural vote. Day two serves as the layover day. Day three, by rule, the cloture petition to halt debate ripens, as they say, one hour after the Senate meets. If the Senate is really trying to maximize its time, it could start the Senate day at 12.01 a.m. Eastern time on day three. Thus, the cloture petition to draw debate to a close would ripen at 1 1 a.m. Eastern time and be available for a procedural vote that requires 51 votes. That's just for the procedure. If the Senate votes to invoke cloture or limited debate opponents of the nomination, uh, then get 30 hours to run out of uh, out the string, but only 30 hours. That's it. Under nuclear option two, McConnell established a new precedent in the Senate to end filibuster on Supreme Court nominees last year. It used to take 60 votes to end debate on a Supreme Court nominee but McConnell lacked the votes to clear the filibuster Democrats lodged against Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch so McConnell instituted a new procedure lowering the bar to break a filibuster on the Supreme Court nominee from 60 to 51. Now day four, the 30 hours of post cloture time expires on the nomination. Opponents can no longer pull rabbits out of their hats or anyone else's. The Senate takes a confirmation vote on the nominee. Confirmation requires a simple majority. That's the process that has to happen before uh, the vote takes place. And it's predicted that won't happen any sooner than Wednesday, but that might mean the final vote takes place sometime during uh, the weekend. Well, October 1st marks the beginning of a new Supreme Court term, one man down this time around. The Supreme Court's last term featured a number of wins for conservatives in the uh, upcoming term. The justices are going to tackle important issues, including property rights, the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause, abusive class action settlements and Congress's over delegation of its powers to the executive branch. The next term also will mark the dawn of a new era at the court with the retirement of longtime swing vote justice Anthony Kennedy on the horizon. And um, as you know, battles over war memorial crosses, Medicaid funding for Planned Parenthood, employment discrimination and more may reach the court later this term. The 2018-2019 Supreme Court term promises to be an important one, as is the case for virtually all of them. Well, this term uh, promises to be um, significant, the court is slated to hear uh, cases ranging from the Eighth Amendment issues to critical habitat designations to double jeopardy clause challenges. And the term also marks a new era of the court without Kennedy. October 1st marks the first day, the 2017 term, brings to mind then-candidate Donald Trump's promise that we're going to win so much, you're going to be so sick and tired of winning with conservative victories in numerous cases, including ones involving free speech, free exercise of one's religion, unions, and the travel ban. And while the next term may not have the volume of high-profile headline-grabbing cases, the court will nevertheless hear many cases uh, raising important issues, issues like deciding what hoops uh, property owners have to jump through in order to challenge a government taking of their land. Congress's over delegation of powers to the executive branch, whether states are bound by the Eighth Amendment. Uh, ban on excessive fines and critical habitat designations under the Endangered Species Act and more. This term will also mark the dawn of that new era without Kennedy. Uh, in the past 20 years, many of the highest profile cases came down to Kennedy. He was in the majority in 90% of the cases decided by a vote of 5-4 in the past five years and 75% uh, percent for the past 20 years. And though he once said the cases swing, I don't, litigators have spent the past two decades angling for Kennedy's vote. Indeed, Jeff um, Jeffrey Rosen, a law professor and head of the National Constitution Center, dubbed any brief that sought to curry favor by citing Kennedy's previous opinions as a Kennedy brief. Only time will tell how Kennedy's retirement will change the court. Well, each term features plenty of cases involving legal housekeeping issues like when lawsuits have to be filed to be timely and how cases have to be litigated or settled. Generally, the Supreme Court doesn't consider major legal issues until such matters have been considered by the lower courts. After the courts uh, does does address a major legal issue, its decision may lead to a host of related questions on which the uh, lower courts, the, the academy, the media, Congress have the opportunity to reflect and opine. For example, in the masterpiece cake shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, the court held that the state commission's hostile treatment of a baker who declined to make a custom cake for a gay wedding violated the first exercise or the, rather the free exercise clause of the US Constitution. The court did not, however, reach the heart of the conflict which is whether a business owner may assert a religious exemption to a state law that forbids discrimination based on sexual orientation in public accommodations. There are numerous other cases pending in state and lower federal courts that may bring this very question back to the court. And in fact, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop has once again been hauled before the state commission for declining to make a cake for a gender transition party. So today it all begins again. One man down on the Supreme Court awaiting A decision on Judge Kavanaugh, Uh, if uh, the Senate fails to confirm his nomination, then it's very likely that um, either uh, President Trump will not uh, get the approval of a um, post midterm election majority of Democrats in the House and Senate, primarily with regard to this, the Senate, the opportunity to nominate and get the uh, confirmation of any Supreme Court justice, as that was one of the strategies that's been named as a potential should they be able to block the Kavanaugh nomination. That was a strategy long before these uh, allegations came forward. And that is the strategy that members of the Judiciary Committee and many in the uh, Senate have uh, openly stated is theirs. All right. Quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. Coming up in our next segment, after the 5 o'clock hour news and traffic, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, his latest book, The Church in Babylon, heeding the call to be a light in the darkness. Well, President Donald Trump today celebrated a revised North American trade deal with Canada and Mexico as a return of the United States to a manufacturing powerhouse, vowing to sign the agreement by late November. But the president noted that the deal would need to be ratified by Congress, a step that could be complicated by the outcome of the fall congressional elections. When told he seemed confident of congressional approval, he said he was not at all confident, but felt ratification would be granted if lawmakers took the correct action. Anything you submit to Congress is trouble no matter what, Trump said, predicting that Democrats would say Trump likes it, so we're not going to approve it. Well, the president embraced the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement during a Rose Garden ceremony, branding the pact the USMCA. The president said the name has uh, a, a Good ring to it, repeating USMCA several times. The agreement was forged just before a midnight deadline imposed by the United States to include Canada in the deal reached with Mexico late in the summer. It replaces the 24 year old North America free trade agreement, which Trump said lambasted as a job wrecking disaster that had hollowed out the nation's industrialized base. Blanked by cabinet members, the president said the pact is the most important deal we've ever made so far, covering $1.2 trillion in trade. The president said his administration had not yet agreed to lift tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from Canada, a contentious issue between the two neighbors. For Trump, the agreement reached in the weeks before the November congressional elections offers vindication for his hardline trade policies that have roiled relations with China, the European Union and America's North American neighbors, while causing concerns among Midwest farmers and manufacturers worried about retaliation. The president's advisors view the trade pact as a political winner in Midwest uh, battleground states, critical to the president's 2016 victory and home of tens of thousands of auto workers and manufacturers who could benefit from the changes. The president said he would sign the uh, final agreement in late November in about 60 days, and the pact is expected to be signed by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and outgoing Mexican President Enrique Pena Naito before he leaves office December 1st. Uh, the, uh, Donald Trump said he spoke to Trudeau by phone and told reporters that the recent tensions didn't affect the deal making. He's a professional. I'm a professional. Uh, he called it a fair deal. Opinion well, Naito will be replaced by president elect Andres uh, Lopez. Obrador, uh, whose uh, incoming administration said the deal would offer more certainty for financial markets, investment and job creation. Ratifying the deal is likely to stretch into 2019 because once Trump and the leaders from Canada and Mexico sign the agreement, the administration and congressional leaders will need to write legislation to implement the deal and win passage in Congress. The president threatened to go ahead with the revamped NAFTA with or without Canada. It was unclear, however, whether the president had authority from Congress to pursue a revamped NAFTA With only Mexico will have to tore down most trade barriers between the United States, Canada and Mexico, leading to a surge in trade among them. But the president and other critics said it encouraged manufacturers to move south of the border to make take advantage rather of low Mexican wages, costing American jobs. We will certainly follow that story as it um, as it develops. Well, reporters uh, formed a gauntlet down a corridor leading between the Senate chamber and the office suite of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell early on Friday afternoon. Another uh, scrum surfed near the Capitol Rotunda, lest some of the uh, GOP senators huddled in McConnell's office, tried to escape unnoticed out back of uh, a uh, 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 back entrance. Rather, finally, a few reporters played free safety. They positioned themselves all the way over to the entrance of the House Speaker Paul Ryan's office. This was a safety valve move as senators who really want to elude the press can sometimes sneak from Senate uh, side of the Capitol through the Speaker's office and escape the scribes through the House. Well, amid the Kavanaugh drama, President Trump quietly signed a bill to avert a government shutdown. Uh, there were there was no countdown clock, no um, shuttling back and forth between the White House and the Capitol by Ryan and McConnell, no scramble by House Majority Whip Steve Scalise to round up votes, no declarations of uh, of um, House Freedom Caucus members opposing the legislation. It was as though funding the government was an afterthought. Frankly, it had been years since Congress and administrations of uh, both parties have have navigated a September. Bereft of theatrics involving a government shutdown, Trump signed into law what is known as the cap on Capitol Hill rather as a, a minibus appropriations bill. In March, the president reluctantly signed the omnibus spending bill, which mixed together all 12 of the annual spending bills into. One solitary gargantuan package, the president to briefly threatened to veto the plan despite advocating for the package, but he warned congressional leaders he wouldn't sign another omnibus again. So House and Senate leaders, they crafted a number of minibuses, as they're called, to fund the government for fiscal year 2019 and avoid a shutdown. Well, today, leading the appropriations queue was um, Minibus 1. That plan combined three of the spending packages into one measure. It addressed spending for military construction projects, the Department of Veterans Affairs, energy and water programs, and the legislative branch. Then the House and Senate synced up on uh, an additional minibus, which uh, blended money for the Pentagon as well as the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services. Those two uh, minibuses uh, would account for about five of the 12 appropriations bills for fiscal year 2019. That leaves seven incomplete. So, to avoid a shutdown, congressional leaders latched an interim spending plan known as a CR or continuing resolution to the minibus. The CR would uh, renew all money for the seven remaining spending bills on a temporary basis through the 7th of December. Both chambers of Congress overwhelmingly approved the bill, uh, both bills, I should say, and with little fanfare. After all, the midterms are just days away. It's remarkable that there wasn't a big standoff over government funding this fall, particularly after the president continually rattled shut down sabers over the lack of additional money for his border wall. Well, tucked into the minibus was $1.6 billion in wall funding. But the president is far from scoring the mother load of cash to pay for that wall. In addition, the House and Senate have yet to tackle the spending measure for the Department of Homeland Security. That won't happen until after the election. Both McConnell and Ryan repeatedly said they thought their agreement with Mr. Trump to avoid a shutdown would stick. They were right, even if the president continued to excoriate Congress for not funding his border wall. So if you missed that in the uh, middle of all the other stuff that's going on, that did happen um, while you weren't looking, or at least while the media wasn't looking. Well, in another case of um, a study confirming the obvious, the latest in a long standing debate over violent video games, they do cause players to become more physically aggressive. Now, that doesn't mean everyone who plays them. Uh, can uh, has to be feared and cannot control him or herself, but there is a link. An international study looking at more than 17,000 adolescents ages 9 to 19 from 2010 to 2017 found playing violent video games led to increased physical aggression over time. The analysis of 24 studies from countries including the U.S., Canada, Germany, Japan, found that those who played violent games such as Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, and Manhunt were more likely to exhibit behavior such as being sent to the principal's office for fighting or hitting a non-family member. And although no single research project is definitive, our research aims to provide the most current and compelling responses to key criticism on this topic. That's a quote from Jay Hull, lead author of the study published uh, today in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Scientists. Well, based on the findings, uh, he says, we feel it is clear that violent video games, Uh, game play, rather, is associated with subsequent increases in physical aggression. He's an associate dean, rather, of faculty for the social sciences at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, and the Dartmouth professor of psychological and brain sciences. Video games, uh, game violence, rather, has been a hot-button issue for more than a decade. Interest in research on video games' potential for violence increased after it was learned Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the two teenagers who committed the Columbine High School shooting play, the first-person shooting computer game Doom. But in 2011, Supreme Court decision overturning California's ban on the sale of violent video games to minors, the late Justice Anthony uh, Scalia, rather, dismissed a link between the games and aggression. These studies have been rejected by every court to consider them, and with good reason. They do not prove that violent video games cause minors to act aggressively, he wrote in the majority opinion. Well, since then, an American Psychological Association Task force, uh, Force report in 2015 found a link between violent video games And increased aggression in players, but insufficient evidence that violent games lead to criminal violence. Earlier this year, the president convened a video game summit a month after the February shooting that killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Uh, Prior to that meeting, he said, I'm hearing more and more people say the level of violence on video games is really shaping young people's thoughts. Well, the Dartmouth researchers sought to reduce confusion about research findings, including disputes about the association between violent games and aggression with a a finely structured meta-analysis. Well, those in the study who played violent games, whether frequently or infrequently, had an increased risk of aggressive behavior. The new research echoes Hull's previous finding that playing violent games equates to about twice the risk of being sent to the principal's office for fighting during an eight-month period. He said a separate 2014 study he oversaw of violent video games in 2,000 families is uh, one in 24 included in the meta-analysis. The effect is relatively small, but statistically reliable. The effect does exist. So you can take that for what what you will. We're going to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He's the author of The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light, In the darkness.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that, like the Israelites in Babylon, Christians today are feeling captive, trying to maintain their faith in the midst of a pagan culture faced with new challenges and cultural changes that test the resolve, the dedication and conviction of followers of Jesus living in America. In his latest book, The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, he believes that church is uh, living in a modern-day Babylon with threats from inside by false beliefs and wrong attitudes. Like the Jews of Babylon, Christians learn to engage our culture without being spiritually uh, destroyed by it. And he, who served as senior pastor of the Moody Bible Church in, for 36 years, addresses concerns with sensitivity, biblical guidance, and encouraging words on topics uh, that include the faithful remnant, uh, our call to obedience rather than success, uh, Islam, immigration, and the church, and much, much more. Well, my guest is uh, Dr. Lutzer. He uh, is pastor emeritus of the Moody Church, where he served as senior pastor for 36 years, a clear expositor of the Bible. He is the featured speaker on three radio programs that are heard on more than 1,000 outlets in the United States and around the world. Dr. Lutzer is also an award-winning author of numerous books, including Rescuing the Gospel. Uh, He Will Be the Preacher, The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent, uh, One Minute After You Die and Others. Dr. Lutzer and his wife, Rebecca, live in the Chicago area, but we are delighted to have him with us by phone today to talk about his latest book, The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be Light in the Darkness. Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for joining us.
3: I'm so glad that I can be with you today.
2: Well, let's begin by talking about um, the Babylonian exile to give our listeners who may not be familiar with that portion of Scripture, uh, with the reference in the title of your book, The Church in Babylon.
3: Well, you know, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar came down to Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took Jews to Babylon as captives, about 10,000 of them, and, and they had to go back to Babylon and live as a minority in the midst of a majority pagan culture. And that's really where we are. And God... Uh, gave them instructions how to be involved in the culture, but at the same time, they were not to be assimilated by it. And you know, we're living at a time when the church is, uh, what shall we say, the culture is being more influential in the church than the church is in the culture. So I deal with issues that Daniel faced, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were supposed to bow before the, the image, the state, began to take the role of God through laws of the king. And they were to serve the king, but they were also to put a line in the sand and say there are some things we can do in our culture, but there are some things that we can't. So I make those parallels. But then I also looked around and asked myself, what is in our Babylon today. It's a very different culture, and that's why I have a chapter on the whole issue of uh, social media technology, which in many respects I think is destroying uh, much of our uh, culture because of its addictions and people aren't reading, they're watching YouTube all the time. But in addition to that, a chapter on transgenderism, a chapter on immigration, maybe we can talk about that because I think evangelicals say sometimes very foolish and unwise things about immigration. And then maybe one of the most important chapters, five false gospels within the evangelical church. So I looked around and said, what are those issues that we need to face today as a church? We aren't in Babylon historically, but we are facing our own Babylon today.
2: Now, this is unique for the United States in that we lived in a republic that was largely influenced by and reflected a Christian, a Judeo-Christian worldview. We're seeing a shift that other places like Europe has experienced um, historically as well. How prepared do you think the church has been or is in dealing with the new challenges that we face. We're going to talk about uh, the, the church more specifically, as you do in the book, The Five uh, False Gospels. But generally speaking, what would you attribute our failure at uh, fa- at uh, not allowing ourselves to be uh, assimilated by the culture? Is it that we are biblically illiterate, that our pastors are, are not teaching uh, sound biblical teaching? How would you describe how we find ourselves in this situation today?
3: Yeah, maybe I would say all of the above. Mm-hmm. Plus, Here's here's our problem, okay? We are living in a culture in which we are being shamed into silence. I make the point that we used to have, uh, you know, if you think about the football analogy, there was a time when all of our games were home games. And the people in the stands, you're absolutely right, because of Christian influence, were basically on our side. And even if they didn't agree with us, they wished us well. Well, today, all of our games are away games. The people in the uh, stands are shouting epithets at us. They are uh, rejoicing in our failures. And and uh, fighting against our successes. So we have a whole new culture. But to answer your question more specifically, Yes, indeed, we are shamed into silence uh, through, uh, you know, political correctness, etc. My wife and I have two grandchildren. Well, we actually have eight. But there are two grandsons that are going to college for the first time this fall. They are in their colleges. I am not so afraid that they will be talked out of their faith as I will that they might be mocked out of their faith because the whole idea is that the god of the bible is an embarrassment to modern culture especially when it comes to matters of sexuality and so to answer your question unfortunately people in order not to offend anyone has uh, people have oftentimes been silent even about their faith in christ you'd be surprised at the number of people who are christians who work next to non-Christians, and the non-Christians don't even know that these are people who belong to Jesus. So unless we begin to witness and understand our responsibility and be willing to take whatever consequences there are and be called names, if that's what it takes, then we simply capitulate to the culture.
2: Mm. One of the things that we have enjoyed, and it's uh, in our Constitution, is the freedom of religion. Some have tried to alter that to uh, reduce it to the freedom of worship, which is a very different thing. We're seeing that uh, constricted these days. How should we respond to these changes in religious freedom that seek to uh, uh, constrict how we can express our faith in the public square?
3: Well, first of all, you certainly see the importance that there is to the laws that are uh, there today, and that's why you have this circus going on in Washington regarding... you know, the Supreme Court. Show me your laws, and I will show you your God. Now, here's the point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were supposed to bow down and worship the image, and they didn't. And in one of the greatest expressions of faith in the Bible anywhere, they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, we believe, O king, that our God is able to deliver us and that he will deliver us. But if not, let it be known unto you, O king, that we will not bow down and worship the image. We will go to the fiery furnace. So they were not certain at all that when they were thrown into the fiery furnace that there would be the fourth man who would walk among them. And the point is that that was an unusual story. There are many people who are being burned for their faith, who are being uh, tortured for their faith. Now, we're not there yet in America, but are we willing Mm. to lose our jobs for our faith? and I stress the need to draw a line in the sand. For example, there's a teacher here at the Moody Church who teaches in the Chicago school system, and he says he was told it is not enough to simply tolerate same-sex marriage. If you don't celebrate it, you might be fired. So that for him is a line in the sand. I can be in a school system which tolerates it, but if I'm asked to celebrate what God has condemned, that's a line in the sand. So, His question is, if it comes down to that, is he willing to lose his job? And we as Christians need to be able to stand so strong that we say, even my job, though I need to earn a living, is not as important to me as the integrity of what I believe and standing up for truth. So that's our challenge as the state becomes more secular and you have the invasion of laws into our own consciences.
2: We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, his book, Most Recent recently the church in babylon heeding the call to be a light in the darkness we'll continue our conversation in a moment you're listening to the georgine rice show
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: we're back we're talking this afternoon with dr irwin lutzer his book is titled the church in babylon Heeding the Call to be a Light in the Darkness. Now, one of your chapters is titled, A Light to the City, a Heart for God. We are called to be salt and light, but some of us are sort of have a, a dimmer. We can be bright in some places, less so in other places, in order to protect our own um, uh, reputations, perhaps, our sanity, our, our peace, uh, the, uh, to minimize the uh, conflict that we might face. What is it that we are called to do as salt and light in the city that God has placed us in uh, that is honoring to him, that faces the challenges that are coming and will come uh, and without compromise?
3: Well, you know, I might say that uh, it is very important for us to realize that there is no easy fix. If you know anything about Chicago, you know that we have a lot of shootings here. Yes. And uh, it isn't just a matter of praying, oh God, we pray for the city. Though we do, and we have churches, we have we have citywide permittings here in Chicago. But the point is, the illustrations that I give in the book are those people who are working in these neighborhoods, some live in these neighborhoods, they take in children, street children, sometimes young men who have no fathers, they mentor them, and unless we recognize that there has to be great sacrifice on the part of people who are living in areas like that. Now, I don't live in an area like that, but I talk about Those who do, because that's an ultimate kind of sacrifice that they have to make to become transforming. So, what we have to do is to be the light, the salt, but at the same time, we can't give up truth. And you know, we're living at a day and age when words such as love and unity and compassion are being defined in ways that are contrary to Scripture. So, you have, for example, the concession of many evangelicals to same sex marriage. And the reason is because they know some homosexuals who are kind, who are loving, and so forth. So they say, why should we deny them this? And so what you have oftentimes is love overcomes some very clear biblical guidelines. And what we have to do is to help people know that we live with a tension. Yes, we love, but we also have convictions that cannot be sold on the altar of compassion. Uh, We need to be able to live with that tension to be salt and light.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about one area of tension. What should the response be? among Christians regarding the acceptance of transgender or LGBTQ communities, especially inside the church, to, to respect uh, and maintain that tension, uh, it, particularly in the face of those within the church who are willing to compromise for the sake of relieving that tension?
3: Well, you know, boy, I don't know how much time we have, but I'll hurry through this, okay? The point that I make is simply this. When a 52-year-old man whose name is Paul Walshow, when he identifies as a six-year-old girl and plays with dolls as he does does he have a body problem or does he have a mind problem i suggest that he has a mind problem now what you find then in the transgender community is this if a man is born as a man and he identifies as a woman does he have a mind problem or does he have a body problem the issue is really one of the mind so the contemporary way is to say look a person has to be at peace so what you do is you mutilate your body so that it fits the mind my argument is the mind needs to be changed if anything in order to fit the body and if there is no resolution of that tension then the teaching of the scripture and this is true also for those who struggle with homosexuality the teaching of scripture is celibacy because all sexual relationships outside of a man woman relationship of marriage covenant are condemned in scripture so what you need to do is to be able to train young people to say this is the the struggle that we're having, and this is what God calls us. Now, there are many examples, especially when it comes to homosexuality, of those whose desires have been changed by God, etc. But there are those who struggle who say that those desires are still with me. So the question is, are you willing to pay the price of discipleship and say, I'm committed to holiness no matter what my desires are?
2: Maintaining that standard has become the challenge of the church as we're seeing more and more evangelical churches compromise on that issue for the sake of, uh, well, I don't want to try to predict motives, but. Um, And and that has uh, challenged many believing that if church leadership is willing to compromise on this point, then perhaps there are other issues in scripture that we should also consider um, reinterpreting for the sake of the, the time and place we find ourselves in culture. And there's a danger to that.
3: There really is. And you know, in the chapter of the book, which happens to be the longest chapter where I talk about five false gospels within the evangelical church, number one is permissive grace. Permissive grace says that because Jesus died for our sins, and because we receive the righteousness of Christ when we receive him, we basically even don't have to repent of our sins, and we just need to accept the fact that we are accepted and forgiven. So what you have is evangelicals cherry-picking passages of Scripture about grace, and by the way, thank God for grace, but they're applying it in ways that indicates a great deal of permissiveness. It used to be, back when uh, we were all older and uh, still should be, we preached on sin and when people are convicted we offered them the matchless boundless unsearchable grace of God but today people are being offered grace up front before they even know they need it they're being told God loves you unconditionally so that is being interpreted as unconditional love means unconditional acceptance of my lifestyle and what it comes down to this is I love to sin God loves to forgive what a wonderful relationship we have and that is on oftentimes found in evangelical churches, people who accept the Bible but actually pick and choose those texts that they think supports their point of view and ignoring the balance of Scripture regarding the judgment of God, the discipline of God, and so forth. So that's the culture in which we find ourselves.
2: Mm. My guess is this is uh, not a new heresy that this uh, finds its roots somewhere in, uh, in ancient heresy uh, and is certainly among the five false gospels within the church that you write about in the book we're discussing today, The Church in Babylon. We're going to take a break in just a moment. When we come back, though, I want to talk a little bit about how the church should address the issue of immigration, because there is a divide within the church on that subject. And then I'd like to take a few moments and look at the other four false gospels within the church. So we'll take a quick break and uh, return to do just that. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, his most recent book, The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be Light in the Darkness. The book is published by Moody Publishers. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is pastor emeritus at the Moody Church in Chicago, where he served for over 35 years. He is a renowned theologian. Dr. Lutzer earned his uh, uh, degree from Winnipeg Bible College, his master's and a doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary uh, in uh, in philosophy from Loyola University, and an honorary LLD from the Simon Greenleaf School of Law. He is an award-winning uh, author and featured speaker on three Radio programs that can be heard on more than 700 stations. Uh, in the United States and around the world. We're talking about his most recent book, The Church in Babylon, Heeding the Call to Be a Light in the Darkness. Now, another of the issues that the church is divided on, uh, which is probably somewhat confusing to the culture, is the subject of immigration. And while we want to be compassionate and generous, we also want to be biblical in our approach to uh, how to respond to this controversy in our country. How should Christians perceive immigrants? Uh, Should we be helping them? And under what circumstances, in what ways? What does the scripture... uh, Uh, Tell us about how we ought to conduct ourselves in a biblical manner in this current uh, challenge.
3: Excellent question. And let me, first of all, preface it by saying that part of my chapter deals with Islam. Yes. I didn't realize that Islam has a very uh, neatly worked out theory of immigration, which goes back to Muhammad. You know, they have a different calendar, and it doesn't go back to the birth of Muhammad or the death of Muhammad, but the migration of Muhammad to go from Medina to Mecca to spread the faith. And throughout the um, the Quran and so forth, you have special blessings on those who go on the Hydra, those who go to other parts to spread the Muslim faith. And that's why terrorism is not our major problem. It is the insidious belief of the radicals in the Muslim faith. Not all, of course, because many Muslims are secularized, but it's the belief of the radicals that this is the way Islam is to be spread but now to your question I believe that many evangelicals use the Bible to try to take the morality that should exist in the church and the ethics of the church and apply it to national policy and I believe that this is wrong in other words the uh, I heard one pastor say something that is very unwise well the gospel says whosoever will may come so we as America should say whosoever will may come and he was basically arguing for open borders yes it's true that the gospel says, whosoever will may come. But that is not... To be applied to the state. If I might put it clearly, the symbol of the state is the sword, as it indicates in the 13th chapter of uh, Romans. The symbol of the church is the cross, and those two are entirely different. And then you have evangelicals saying, well, Jesus himself was an immigrant. Well, yes, I mean, you know, his family took him to Egypt. We don't know that they broke any laws in doing that, but the point is that has nothing to do with the national policy of the United States. The responsibility of the government is the protection of its citizens to maintain order and so forth. So what we must do is to realize that there is nothing in the Bible that would suggest that a nation does not have a right to say who comes into a country or who doesn't. Now that being said, let's talk about the church. The role of the church is to minister to anyone, whether they are here legally or illegally. the example of, uh, you know, the Good Samaritan. He didn't say to the man wounded along the road, now what religion are you? Are you here legally or illegally? We help people no matter what. And I give examples of how churches are reaching out to Muslim communities, Syrian refugees, ministering to them, uh, helping them. And that's the role of the church. And we say, whether you're here legally or illegally, the fact is you are here and you are our neighbor, and we want to represent Jesus Christ and his love to you and the gospel to you that's the role of the church that's not the role of the state and what does Jesus say you forgive your brother seventy times seven those are the relationships that exist in the church how would you like to have a national policy that we forgive those who come over our borders illegally seventy times seventy so let's keep those straight and let's recognize and not take that which applies to the church and think that it necessarily applies to national policy.
2: Let's touch, uh, touch on the five false gospels within the church. Earlier, you spoke about the gospel of permissive grace, and these are internal uh, challenges that we face in trying to reflect uh, the glory of God into the culture that we're in and are failing because of these um, false gospels. What are the other four? And, and give us a brief explanation.
3: Yeah, very briefly. The second one is the gospel of social justice. What you find is many young people are turned off to the church church, and so they say they're into social justice, which has many different definitions, and we won't go through them all except to say that social justice and justice issues might be the fruit of the gospel, if if the justice issue is correctly defined, but it is not the gospel. And I say that somebody has to tell this generation that the gospel is not what we can do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us, and gospel, social justice, even at its best, is not the gospel. And so you have churches and even evangelicals who are into social justice sometimes defined as Marxism, where you think that a just society is taking wealth from the rich and making sure that it's equally distributed. Different definitions of what we must recognize it is no substitute for the doctrine of repentance and God's grace and salvation. Very quickly, number three is the intrusion of new age teaching into the church. Even such things as contemplative prayer. And I believe in contemplative prayer. I contemplate all the time when I pray. But contemplative prayer. Is sometimes combined with Eastern religion and Eastern ideas of how our consciousness ends up being God etc and uh, we are really wrong-headed and misled uh, there's a Catholic writer by the name of uh, father roar who has written a book read widely by evangelicals and I show how it is totally and completely new age so those are the kinds of things the next one is the gospel of my sexuality we've already talked mm-hmm. about that earlier same-sex marriage etc and then the last of the false gospels is not really a false gospel but I put it in it is this there are Muslim people who are being invited into churches for Christian Muslim dialogue and, uh, I, I quote a book that was written by Muslims for Muslims on how to make Islam palatable and acceptable to Americans. And the Islam that is presented there has really no roots in the Hadith or the Quran. It is a Sanitized version and uh, Muslims are I'm not opposed to debating a Muslim necessarily but when you have them come into the churches and present their view of Islam it is a very different Islam than the Christians have experienced in the Middle East and they present it to Americans many of whom have never seen a Quran much less read any of it we're so eager to believe that Islam at its roots is a is a religion of peace and love not knowing knowing its true history and its true teachings. So those, very briefly, are the five false gospels that I present in that chapter.
2: Is the church today in America, like the church of Laodicea we read about in the, the book of Revelations, and can the church survive and thrive in, in times of Babylon here?
3: Well, that's a very good question. You know, in my book, as you may know, I have a chapter on how did Jesus find himself outside of the door of the church at Laodicea? You know, behold, I stand at the mm-hmm. door and knock. He's knocking at the door of the church. So I discuss how did he get out there and how do we invite him back? Can the church survive and even thrive? Yes. If we're willing to pay the price, Jesus loves the church. He walks among the candlesticks, as it shows in the book of Revelation. He is on our side. The question is, are we willing to pay the price? And, you know, you can look at a church like the church in China that doesn't have freedom. I point out it's not necessary to have freedom of religion in order to be faithful if we are willing to pay that price. Whether or not we are, I'm not sure. We don't have prayer meetings in our church anymore. I don't know how bad it would have to get before people began to say, you know, we really ought to have a prayer meeting in our church. And so we are generally, and I'm making general statements here, not seeking God the way we should. We are capitulating to the culture. And what we must be willing to do is to stand at a time when our light is seen as darkness, which is exactly where we are. Today.
2: Mm. Now, before I let you go, can you share a little bit about the DVD series and study guide that accompanies the book, The Church in Babylon?
3: Yes, in the DVD series, I give a brief five to seven minute summary of what the book is about, why I wrote the chapter, and then along with that, there's a study guide, and that study guide, of course, has questions and so forth for group study, and I'm so excited to be able to say that already I find that there are churches and places that are using it. So, if your uh, listeners are interested, they can go to moodymedia.org, 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 and Moody Media, of course, is because of our ministry here, Mm -hmm. and they can find out more, more books uh, also that are available, but they can get a copy of the book along with a study guide, moodymedia.org. So I trust that, uh, listen, I gave this book to Jesus, especially as it got near the end, and I was struggling with some Organizational issues. I said, Jesus, this is your book. And I'd wake up in the morning and say, What do you want to say to your church today? So I feel very deeply about it, and I'm so glad that we've had this uh, opportunity to be together, to be interviewed today. The Church in Babylon, meeting the call to be a light in the darkness. Moodymedia.org is one place where you book.
2: Well, I thank you for taking the time to talk with us and for your diligence and obeying God's call because the Church needs a book like this to help us navigate these very uh, treacherous but survivable waters. Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and God bless you. You the same. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to... To the Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I so appreciate uh, Dr. Lutzer and his, uh, his call for us to press into what God is calling us to do and being willing to pay the price, whatever that might happen to be. To give us just another glimpse into the, the direction the culture is headed, I wanted to reference a uh, letter I received from listeners who live here in Portland. Uh, they'd written to the, the director of Multnomah County Library saying, uh, it has come to our attention that that Multnomah County Library is sponsoring an event in which drag queens read stories of inclusion and tolerance to children at seven libraries with dances following. We find the use of public monies to fund such events to be both repulsive in taste and morals. Poison Waters, the name says it all, and Her Ilk, this is one of the uh, readers apparently, are representative of a very small group of individuals who have a lifestyle different from the majority of the public, and the letter letter goes on from there. They received a response uh, from the letter. uh, from the uh, director of libraries, Valley Oakley, uh, thank you for writing the library to share your concern about our Drag Queen Storytime program series offered this fall. While public libraries are often at the center of disagreement around free expression and censorship, I want to acknowledge and respond uh, your concern, to your concerns. The library serves a diverse population with a broad range of interests, preferences, and needs. We strive to reflect our community, uh, our community's needs in selecting programs, books, and other materials. Drag Queen Storytime events seek to explore ideas of difference, diversity, and inclusion through stories, music, and copy- costume i 've seen the uh, costumes of some of these and i 'd be afraid to go just as an adult, let alone with a kid. These are rather scary looking figures who are uh, posing at the library, but nonetheless, she goes uh, on to write uh, the library 's focus is designing uh, these programs has remained on the uh, context within them. All presenters have agreed to participate based on the library 's commitment to inclusion, diversity, tolerance and creating a welcome space for all points of view. Drag Queen Storytime presents presenters are paid with private funds. Now, I wanted to bring this to your attention by way of warning. You can go to the Multnomah County website for more information. There's a picture there of one of the uh, queens who uh, is involved, Carla Rossi. Uh, Queen Carla Rossi, it says, reading stories about inclusion and diversity, followed by a dance party for kids. The library is proud to present an hour of kid-friendly drag. What exactly is kid-friendly drag, Join us for Storytime featuring our fabulous Storytime's presenter, Carla Rossi. Uh, it's an hour of kid-friendly drag. Join us for this special Storytime. And it goes on from there. Uh, then there's another one. The library is proud to present an hour of kid-friendly drag. Join us for the special story time featuring the fabulous sisters, Perpetual Indulgence. Mommy, what does Perpetual Indulgence mean when the man dressed as a woman... Uh, makes reference to it. Sister Donna and Sister Olive reading stories about inclusion and diversity followed by a craft or dance party. Um, That's the description that's given. And then um, there's a bit more of an explanation. Sister Donna, Van, let's see, Van New Day sprang fully formed from the three-ways collision of a tiny car full of clowns with big feet, a van full of nuns with love for their community, and a semi-truck full of glitter with a big, burly, bear driver. She never... um, she never did get his name Donna has been sister of perpetual indulgence for more than five years and she which is of course a he uses her sister magic to spread joy and make sure everyone she meets knows that they are worthy and lovable just as they are sister Olive you began your ju- began her journey rather in 2015 she started the annual event reading it's a drag where new books and gifts are handed out to dozens of area children and the Portland sisters read queer family positive books to kids the event repeats every six months with a winter pajama party version and as an official kickoff to portland pride in june sister olive uh, olive's favorite events are bingo with residents of our house reading it's a drag and she is excited to be working with a new drag reading program at uh, multnomah county libraries um anyway you as a parent need to be informed you can look up more information about it all you can write to the uh, library to either uh, um ask for an explanation to express your views on the subject The Multnomah County Library. Now, my guess is this is being carried out in libraries all across uh, the country as well. But uh, you might want to check if you're in Washington County or Clark or Clackamas counties to see if something similar uh, is going on in your uh, locations as well. But the Multnomah County Library says, look, we want to reflect all views uh, having to do with sexuality, confusion. Um, I, I don't know where the line might be drawn, uh, but she concludes, moving forward, we'll reflect on the face, uh, the feedback that members of the faith community have offered. We will consider the views and concerns expressed and work to ensure that Multnomah County Library holds itself to consistently high standards you wish to submit and it goes on from there i thank you for expressing your family thoughts and ideas and hope you'll continue to use the library a public library should remain a cornerstone of the community it serves and create opportunities for dialogue and understanding so you have um, at the multnomah county library opportunities for grown men dressed like women to read books to children about uh, themselves and others um Now you know. Coming up on the program tomorrow, we're going to talk with Jonathan McKee. Kind of makes you want to pick up Dr. Lutzer's book, The Church in Babylon, How Do You Heed the Call to Be Light in the Darkness?, um, Jonathan McKee is the author of The Bullying Breakthrough: Real Help for Parents of the Bullied, Bystanders, and Bullies. On Wednesdays, we'll talk with uh, David Limbaugh. Jesus is Risen: Paul and the Early Church. On Thursday, we have our Pastors Appreciation Breakfast, so we'll share some of the best of the Georgine Rice Show, and then we anticipate a fun Friday to wrap it all up. I want to thank James Blinn for producing and engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.